You're listening to Emmy Award-winning host Jordan J. Adams. And now, back to the handsome, effervescent and humble Jordan J. Adams. So here we are, Matthew. We're beautiful Bayshore Drive in Tampa, Florida. It's a beautiful sunny day. Temperature's probably about 55, 60, so it's a nice little bite in the air, but not too cold. And you and I were talking earlier about how important it is to, to just like take a minute and say, we're here. Like there's no, we don't need to rush off. We don't need, there's no place we need to be immediately. This will be the picture that we're looking at in 30 years and saying, remember we were on Bayshore, how awesome that was? So why not be awesome now? Because you know we'll be saying that about the picture when we're old and decrepit (laughs) in a a bed, you know? It is pretty awesome. (laughs) So I know you're not a Tampa native. What brings you to our fine city? I was giving a keynote speech for a large high-tech company today uh, in um, outside of, uh, what should I Clearwater? Clearwater, yes. Yeah, beautiful, sunny Clearwater. Another awesome area. Uh, the whole Tri-City area here in Tampa Bay, St. Pete, Clearwater, and Tampa. If you haven't gotten out and checked it out, I highly recommend it. Just exquisite. Uh, what, were, what was the subject that you were going over? I was uh, talking to them about being more effective in their professional and personal lives. There's a lot of things we do that get in our own way, and one of the major points was that we, we as individuals, are always our own greatest impediment to success, to happiness, and to having what we really want in life. So true. You know, the working title of this show for a while, and I'm not sure what it'll end up being. It might be a rotating name, but I was calling it the cage for a while, or open the cage, and because of the double meaning of we kind of put ourselves in cages. We don't even realize that we have this internal narrative that's limiting us. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and those are and, and what puts us in those cages are our beliefs. Beliefs we hold is true that may in fact not be true. And uh, again, we'll probably I don't know if we get to this at all, but I was a, a hospice volunteer for about eight years, and I saw how people's beliefs had an enormous impact on their healing, whether they died or lived, how their, their treatment was received. I mean, it was enormous. It cannot be understated. The power of belief and what we hold is true. Yeah, I mean, they now have uh, shown that there's uh, no doubt, it's been scientifically proven, that beliefs alter your brain physically um, and they, they change your chemistry. It's amazing how powerful beliefs are. Absolutely. And uh, that's the choice we have as humans. One of the few real powers we have is where we place our attention and what beliefs we choose to hold is true. And you look at someone, you think, wow, they're out of touch with reality, but they could either be a genius or truly someone who's unstable. And the only difference is, is how the world responds to them. So I'm sure, I'm sure Elon Musk, you know, has, at times has been um, said, people have said he's crazy, but look what he's doing now. Uh, Stephen Jobs, same way. George Lucas, uh, Bill Gates. Um, all these people at some point were ridiculed or, or questioned, and, uh, but they held their vision and had a huge impact on the world. When you come to towns and you speak, and we'll, we'll talk about your uh, trajectory in just a little bit here, uh, but when you come to towns and speak, uh, what, are, what are the bullet points that you try to get across to people? What are the, what are the biggest needs that you're finding, um, not only in the corporate world, but just in general when you're speaking with people? Okay. I try to customize, I've never given the same speech twice, and I customize all my keynotes to the needs of my clients if they're corporate clients or if it's an organization, I try to customize it. But, but your question is a good one. And I think if I had to answer that as, as candidly as I can, I think everyone is looking for tools and permission to be more effective. 
they're looking for permission to be great. They're looking for support to, to, to be great and to have some more success in their life. And um, I think they're also looking candidly for security and for comfort. And that's not necessarily a bad thing if it doesn't become everything, you know. A little bit of security and comfort goes a long way as long as you don't camp out there mm. and, and limit other opportunities because you want to feel safe. But, uh, you know, people are largely the same with exceptions. But, you know, we're all looking for love and nurturing and community and support and acknowledgement uh, from our, our, our colleagues, from our friends, our families and our clients. Mm. Mm. I know you've you've taken big risks in, in your in your time and you've got big rewards. Uh, but I also know that you've had some real hardship as well. Um, let's start from the early years. We'll okay. go on the Wayback Machine. Tell us uh, you know, where you were born, where you were brought up, what your family life was like. Okay. I was born and raised in Phoenix, Arizona with one brother and one sister. And my parents were amazing people, brilliant, and they loved us very much, but they hated each other. So my parents were divorced when I was four. And I spent the next 20 years actively trying to destroy and hurt each other. And that dynamic was devastating for young kids, for me. Devastating. Uh, what people don't know is that young people get their self-esteem through seeing a loving example of a mother and a father or two, two loving parents. And um, I had no self-esteem. It was eviscerated because of the violence and hatred and resentment that I was forced to witness. So I had to build it all on my own as I grew up to be a you know, young adult. And in my early 20s, I had to start doing things like seminars and workshops and meditation and retreats and therapy uh, to try to be, you know, feel a, a sense of myself. Um, then, of course, I did a lot of healing through relationships. And I, I always, you know, people are say they're always looking for their soulmates. But you don't, get the, the, you, you don't get the right to meet a soulmate until you've met a bunch of wound mates. And a wound mate is someone who comes into your life and shows you the parts of you that are incomplete. And it's not generally fun. It can be very dysfunctional, very dramatic, very uh, ugly. But if you have some sense of uh, the truth that life happens for you and not to you and you take the lessons that were there to learn, you can move through that, those healing, those, those, those learnings and harvest something much more healthy and remunerative emotionally for yourself. What were some of um, the wounds that you experienced uh, given the fact that you watched your parents you know, try to hurt each other for 20 years? What would you say were some of the primary wounds? I had no good models for love intimacy or marriage and therefore when I got into relationship as a young adult my 20s I would attract very wounded uh, women because that's what I was so of course they had to be the same as I or I wouldn't have attracted them and of course uh, anytime we worked to a place where love peaked its little head out I hit the road I would sabotage I would do some really awful things to get the hell out because the whole notion of love was literally terrifying for me so thank God that that pattern was complete uh, because I was somewhat introspective and got a lot of help. I saw that pattern. In fact, over a 10-year period, I had three major relationships. And the first one was a young a woman, really wonderful, but she was raised by a, uh, a mentally ill mother who tortured her, put her feet in boiling water and crushed her hands in boxes, was eventually taken away by the police, you know, as she ran screaming naked through the town. The second one was a woman who was sexually abused by her neighbor as a young girl. And the third was a woman who had been incested by her grandfather and had huge wounding in that area. And I looked back over those 10-year period and I said, wow, look, look at this pattern. It kept coming back around, all these really wounded women. I said, I wonder why that pattern's there. And I finally realized that they were reflecting me. I was that wounded 
you know, bird. It wasn't just them. I had at least 50% of responsibility for that. And once I saw that pattern, I made some significant changes. And my next major relationship was the woman I'm married to today. And that's, I'm not saying the marriage is perfect because it's not. I've never met a marriage that's perfect. But it's loving. It's, it's nurturing. It's caring. It's committed. It's monogamous. You know, I'm very happy in it. Would you say that the um, demonstration that your parents were giving you, were you as- associating that with love? Were you, were, in your mind, were you saying this is what love is? Well, I always were told that, you know, a husband and wife or a mother and dad love each other. So maybe on some level, yeah. Uh, I just knew I didn't want any part of it. You know, if you're raised where you're getting beaten up every day, you know, you're going to do everything you can on some level, unconsciously or consciously, to avoid those chances of getting beaten up. And uh, I will say this, you know, I, I was a kind of an undersized kid growing up. I was terrified of getting beaten up. So I developed a real per, uh, sense of humor, you know, to keep people laughing instead of smacking me around. And then when I got a little older into college, I started taking martial arts. I studied keto. I was very good. I was very good at it. Um, and... There was a huge moment in my life where I realized that my skill as a, as a martial artist was not going to get me where I needed to go. And this is huge in the fight world as well. You know, fighting is a metaphor for life. And we always have a choice in almost every situation, whether we fight or we find other more creative ways to, to, to handle conflict. And this particular one, because I wanted to face my fear of getting beaten up, uh, and I was lifting weights, and I was the heaviest I ever was in my life at my junior year in college, and um, studied martial arts, and I was a bouncer believe it or not, in a bar in Boulder, Colorado. And it was called Anthony's, uh, the Harvest House. Anthony's Gardens, the Harvest House. And then on a busy Friday afternoon, we had five, 6,000 people there. We had 37 bouncers. And I was by far the best bouncer because I, I loved people. And I liked talking to them. And I would always talk them out of the bar peacefully instead of having to grab them and carry them out. And I had a bunch of backup too. But one night, it was like a Wednesday night. I was on loan. It was like 2 in the morning, about to close. And it was this group of four at a table, two, two guys and their dates. And these guys were large guys, you know, six foot three, six foot four, 240, 250, big boys. And they were drinking and, you know, they were ex-Vietnam vets. And the waitress came up and said, these guys are being abusive and I can't handle them. So I walked over and I said, you know, I realized I couldn't myself throw them out of the bar. So I made the comment, probably unwisely so. I said, you think at your age you would learn how to act in public? And I walked away and sure enough, this one guy, you know, he was kind of trapped between his buddy and his his girl, he tried to get out of, the, out of the booth, and he couldn't. He finally gets out, and I'm already across the bar, and um, he starts coming at me full speed in a drunken fury. And I picked up a Michelob bottle, a Michelob beer at the time, had a very unique bottle. And I was going to hit it over his head because he was coming right at me. And, you know, they say things slow down. It's true. It got really slow motion, and I had just begun a meditative practice. And I was given a word, a very ancient and very sacred name for the divine, and as he you know, plants his foot and brings his fist back, I start chanting it silently to myself. And his fist comes forward and stops about six inches from my face. And he starts screaming, I was going to kill me. I'm just chanting that word. And, and the word is Hugh, H-U. It's a very ancient, sacred name for the divine. And I was chanting Hugh. And after about six or seven seconds, he puts his hands down. And I walked him out of the bar. So I spoke to someone in, the, in, the, in our community that was farther along on the path than I, and, they, and I said, what happened? They said, by chanting that word, I, I raised my vibration energetically. He physically could not have touched me. He was at a very low vibration of anger and drunkenness, and here I'd lay, uh, elevated mine to one of love and acceptance. He physically could not have touched me, and I realized the power. I mean, martial arts is great, we're gonna talk more about fighting, but it's the power of spirit, the power of the heart, that is the true protection and the true, the true power we have. So you've developed this wonderful skill to talk your way out of, out of trouble. 
Um, you've you've talked your way out of trouble with your sense of humor with the young kids with the when you were younger with the with the bullies at that age and then working as a bouncer. So you've you have this gift this gift uh, of verbal abilities, uh, verbal acuity, verbal skills, dexterity, uh, and that how ironic that that has been applied now later in life as you've gotten older you're still like just literally this morning here in tampa went and spoke for two three straight hours to a huge group of people do you see the connection there is there a connection there of course there is and i think again we're always given the tools we need to succeed if we have the sensitivity to be aware of what those are um but i'll share this with you jordan there's one story and it's my again i have a lot of respect for people who who get in a ring and boxing or mixed martial arts. I mean, it's an enormous discipline and the way they do it these days, I think they made it as safe as they can, although it's still obviously very dangerous. But uh, there's a story that I tell, and I I usually can't tell it without without tearing, it's so powerful, but it goes back to a gentleman named Terry Dodson. And I think it was back in the 60s or 70s. He was a, I think he was the US Aikido champion at the time for many years, big guy, I think around 6'4 and 240, 250, big guy. And he went to Japan as a young man in his early 20s to study with the Japanese masters there in Tokyo. And it was very hard on a hardwood floor and a lot, of, a lot of people were getting hurt and they had very, and the masters there were very clear, you never use your skills of Aikido outside this dojo unless there's a danger to yourself or others and it's eminent. And they were adamant about it. They, he'd be thrown out of the dojo if he was ever, ever misused it. So one day as the story goes, he was on one of the subways in Tokyo. And it's Friday crowded, but it was late, so it wasn't that crowded. But this big, huge Japanese construction guy gets on, and he's drunk, and he smells, and and he starts swearing at people and kicking at people. He almost kicked a woman in, the, in her, her stroller, and they scurry off the platform in absolute terror. And he's on the train, and Terry feels this guy is a danger to other people, and a danger to even, even to himself. But I mean, the truth is, he wanted, he wanted the test. This guy was actually bigger than he was, but he said there's not going to be a contest. Terry was in incredible shape and skilled and trained, and he was going to drop this guy like a bag of potatoes. So he, blo- he you know, blows him a little kiss just to infuriate him, and, and, the, and the guy sees it, and he starts swearing and starts coming at him. And as he's about to approach Terry Dodson across the entire train, this little old man sitting in the middle of the train says to the drunk, Hey, you like sake. I think I've seen this video. Well, yeah. And the drunk says, you know, who the frick are you, old man? And he goes, you know, I love sake. My wife and I sit out every night under our parsimon tree, and we sip it as the sun goes down in our veranda. Wow. And, the, and the drunk eventually looks at him, and, you know, he's, he sits down. And by the time Terry Dodson left the train, the drunk was laying in the lap of the old man. The old man was stroking his head as he sobbed. Wow. And what he said was that he had seen true Aikido used in a masterly way. That, that old man was a master of Aikido. He took anger and aggression and violence and he transformed it into compassion and love. And I never forgot that story. And so all my you know, boxing experience and all my, my, my uh, Taekwondo experience you know, kind of faded after that. And I focused on being a compassionate, caring person. And I've never had a situation since then that even came remotely came to, that came to blows or that I was felt physically threatened. You know, I've had these weird moments um, and they they're starting to come they're still infrequent but they're starting to come more frequently the more I meditate and the more my meditation practice takes shape I'm starting to see a disappearance of boundaries between people of oh well that's them well that they're not me or that's that's this race or that's Mm -hmm. this gender or that's all of these things that we use to separate ourselves 
are starting to disappear. And there's been a couple moments, and they're just generic, arbitrary moments where I'll be walking into the grocery store, and I'll realize everyone in the store is me, and they're my family, and I love them just as much as I love my family. I just don't know them yet. And it's weird. I'm not going to pretend it's not weird. It, I actually, there's been a couple times I said, what the heck was that? I'm not even sure I want that. But it is interesting. I can actually attest to that, that Aikido skill of the empathy where you know exactly what to say, how to say it, when to say it, why to say it, and where to say it. You just have a wisdom and I hope it keeps coming. It's a little scary. It descends upon you, this, this guidance, knowingness descends upon you, yeah. It's weird. But Jordan, I will say this, you know, what you just said is really quite beautiful, and I think that's really more who you are. In this country right now, I see a lot of division, very purposefully, you know, setting one group against another. And, um, you know, for better, for, I mean, it's, it's what is, and I hope we transcend it. But what I want to just talk to your listeners about is, that, you know, every great teacher that's ever come to the planet, Jesus, Buddha, Lao Tzu, Zoroaster, you know, they've all preached the same thing, which is love yourself like your neighbor. And, and there's a reason for that. And um, what I want to say to people listening is this. It's easy to love people who look like us and think like us. The real work, the real challenge is loving people who are different, who you don't understand, who values you might abhor. To extend compassion and love to them, that's the big game. And that's what we're going to need to do if we're going to heal some of the rifts that I have noticed in society right now. Very well said. And there's definitely people out there who are challenging for us. They're opposite of everything we like. They're opposite of everything we value. We feel like they're destroying something that we cherish. And it's really, really challenging to put yourself in their shoes. Um, but I, I tell you, the times I've been able to do that, you know, infrequent as they are but the times i've been able to do it it is it's an insight it's a it's a you can see their pain you can see someone else's pain and all of a sudden once you can see it as pain you you're not mad at them anymore you, you like my heart goes out to them like oh my god all that's pain all yeah. that bravado all of the bragging yeah. all of the all that stuff whoever the person is that that is bothering you you realize oh it's pain sure. they're in pain hurt people hurt people that's all there is to it. But I want to go back one more thing to the, to the fight world because I know that's a big part of you know, why you're doing this. This goes back a couple of years, but my favorite fighter is a, a young man named Matt Hughes. Remember him? I sure do. And he was, very, he, was a, he was a national champion wrestler and a really just tremendous human being. And I'll never forget that every time he submitted somebody or knocked him out, the minute they called the fight off, he would rush to his opponent to help you know, administer aid because you know, uh, he was concerned about them. He would rush to them. And I never forgot that. You know, he fought hard. He fought with intention. But when it was over, boy, he did the best he could to, to, to assist and support. And I, I just always thought that was a wonderful example. You, know, you have other fighters who have admitted they like hurting people. It's in their DNA. They like it. And I, I'm not going to judge them. That's who they are. And they're going to find their way. And they'll find that's going to be a good formula for them, you know. But Matt Hughes was very different. And Mike Tyson, who I have to believe, if you, maybe the most ferocious fighter ever. You know, has come to a place now in his life where he said this wonderful quote. He says, you either walk this life with humility or life will dress humility upon you. And, you know, someone like that who's seen the dark side of life, who was, grew up in a violent environment, to come to that place after the life he led, that's very inspiring to me. Absolutely. And before we go too much further, we're about halfway through now. Matthew, uh, give us 
uh, your website and if people want to get in touch with you if they want to have you come and speak at any of their events or just uh, get to take a look at some of your work where would they go well i have a facebook page called matthew mitchell two t's in matthew two l's in mitchell matthew mitchell transformational speaker and that's on facebook and then my actual website is www.matthewmitchell.com and that's going to be under construction a bit but you can still see some videos of me speaking and you can contact me there absolutely awesome awesome you triggered a funny story when you said uh how Matthew, how uh, Matt Hughes would would go to his opponent to administer aid after he'd beat him up. Mm-hmm. There's a guy here in Florida. Uh, his name is Tommy Sauer. They call him Trauma. <laughs> he's an EMT guy, and he's a fighter. He's a heavyweight fighter. He's a he's a really nice guy. He would literally, and this literally happened. He broke someone's arm in the fight, and he was the one who set the arm. Like he had, he literally administered the aid. He broke the arm. The fight's over. Okay, no hard feelings. Let me fix the broken arm that I just broke. Mm-hmm. <laughs> crazy, trauma. it's crazy Tommy stuff. Sauer. Crazy stuff. So uh, let's we'll move further down the timeline. We've we've talked a little bit about uh, your childhood, uh, the ability to talk yourself out of trouble, a great skill set to have. You've been able to apply it in the workspace. So uh, tell us a little bit about what you're doing for work. I remember back in the day when we both lived in Los Angeles and I would see you at get-togethers. I knew you were an executive with Encore Media, which is one of the preeminent uh, video companies in California. Uh, tell us a little bit about you know, what you're doing career-wise. Well, at that time I was in the film industry. I spent three years working for George Lucas at Lucasfilm. I uh, had an office at Skywalker Ranch and an office in L.A. It was very exciting. I had very high-profile clients. And then I did spend time uh, as the VP of Television Post for both Encore Video and Modern Video Film. At the time, they were the two preeminent post-production houses in Los Angeles. Uh, left the film industry, and I was giving a speech one day for a company called Corporate Express. It was a large audience, maybe a couple, 300 people. And in the audience was this guy who was the VP of consulting for a consulting company. And afterwards, he told me how much he enjoyed what I had to say. And he said, maybe you should come to work for us. And I said, well, why would I ever want to do that? And he said, because we'll give you 100 days a year. And I said, we need to talk. So (laughs) that began a 16-year journey uh, working for, you know, having consulting consulting companies as my clients and traveling around the world and teaching their curriculum. So I've taught a lot of the Fortune 500 all over the world and uh, had a chance to really get to know people from all over the world and corporate, different corporate cultures and different challenges. I've seen a lot of challenges that companies face and they're different but also eerily similar. And it gave me a lot of perspective and a lot of uh, confidence that with the right approach you can support and heal and, 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 and nurture just about any situation. We know um, you've, you've had a huge success. We talked about that in the bio at the beginning of the show. And we'll, we'll give people uh, links to go to a lot of your work in the show notes and to look at some of the companies that you've worked for. But it wasn't always easy. Um, when they see all these big successes, you know, it's very easy for people to put out their best stuff on Facebook or Instagram or, you know, LinkedIn. You put your happy face on. Uh, that, you know, it, everything is smooth and rosy here on this end. We're going, we're doing just fine. Thank you very much. But it wasn't always that way for you, was it? No, actually, no. I've had a number of times in my life we've been hugely challenged. And again, everyone has their challenges. Everyone has their cross to bear. And, uh, you know, even look at the royal family. They have their cross. Tremendous scrutiny, tremendous criticism, tremendous, you know, idle gossip and hurtful things. So no matter how, how big the silver spoon is in your mouth, everyone's got their cross to bear. So I never forget that. Um, Mike Tyson's was different than others, but um, 
there have been a number of times that, that were very challenging for me and my wife, but maybe the most was back in uh, around 2000, 2001, when we had, had a dot-com bubble burst. And uh, we, I was neck deep in the market on margin when it did. And when the, when the market reversed, we basically were financially devastated. We almost lost our home. We we're almost homeless. I mean, it was just a devastation. It was the hardest time of my life. I had just lost my job at the time. And um, it was a time of just enormous financial pressure. And being raised kind of poor, that was hard on me. Um, so, you know, we, we navigated our way out of that, but it wasn't like I had a vision and I went and acted on it. What I learned to do at that time, I was so beaten down that I just surrendered. I just surrendered and I gave it up to whatever higher power you believe may exist. And I asked to be guided and sure enough, as I was patient, uh, things shifted and I was taken in a whole new direction and a whole new, uh, discipline and success followed thereafter. And I was so grateful. So what I'm trying to say to people here is that you look at people like Elon Musk or Stephen Jobs that have a great vision, they manifest it. And I have enormous respect for that. But many of us simply, you know, there, there is already a plan for us if we have the humility and the patience to get quiet and ask for guidance, life will provide that guidance for us. Now, if that's a little too woo-woo for some of your listeners, I get it. But it's proven again and again and again to work for me. And if you start cultivating your inner resources through things like prayer or meditation or yoga or anything that's going to help you look inwardly, I think you will find that resource will be there for you when you need it. And there are a lot of, uh, well said, and there's a lot of resources in the exterior as well. And it's just a matter of sort of, if you can just see a little light at the end of the tunnel when you're in your lowest um, and try to, and, and, and understand that there's a lot of people there who you might not even know who would, would help you um, and would reach out, if you can reach out to them, would reach out back to you and would want to help you. Anyone who's been down and out and dug their way out, especially, are anxious to help you. They're, they're anxious to share that, you know, because they're so grateful. Yeah. The more grateful I become, the more I want to share, you know, that, hey, man, there's light at the end of the tunnel, you know, because I had my dark times too. And, you know, one, the more light you get, the more you want to share the light. And it becomes kind of this positive spiral upwards. And it, if people can just grab one little glimmer of that light and start reaching out, um, it's, I think, you know, you always hear people who get super dark, they feel like disconnected, you know, they feel like there's no, there's no one who cares or there, you know, you just feel like there's, I don't even feel like a part of this. And it's like feeling a part of, and that's kind of what we were talking about earlier when I, you know, like when I was saying I'd go to a Publix or go to a grocery store and feel connected to everyone in the store, feel like, wow, we're all one. That's connection. The disconnect is feeling like you're not connected to anybody. And that's, you know, we're social beings. Mm -hmm. Homo sapiens, we're tribal. Like if, if, you, if you're out on the plane by yourself, you're not going to be on that plane long, right? <laughs> if you're a loner, there's no such thing as loner back in the day. You know, you know 100,000 years ago, you better not be a loner because your tribe is what keeps you alive. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I could see how people get dark if they feel disconnected. And I'll, I'll simply add to that, but, you know, uh, being persistent and just enduring, you know, to, well, in this moment I can breathe and I have a roof over my head and I have food in my stomach and this moment I'm okay and on this moment I'm okay. And just literally sometimes it gets that bad, you're going moment to moment. If you can just endure, things will eventually shift you know, most of the time, there are some, like if you were in the concentration camps to the Second World War, I mean, it might not. You might be killed before it got better. But most of the times, that are not quite that dire. If you just hang on and endure, 
there's going to be a shift. But I will say one more thing, because what you said reminded me of this. I was always, um, you know, because of democracy, I'm a kind of a big democracy guy. I, I was always very pro-Israel. You know, they were a, the only democracy in the Middle East. They were a staunch American ally, and I was very pro-Israel. And I started volunteering when I was, you know, in New Mexico, uh, in Santa Fe, where I live now, for an organization called Creativity for Peace. And what they do is they take eight Israeli girls and eight Palestinian girls into New, the high desert of New Mexico for three or four weeks, and they give them incredible training, and they come together, and they bond, and they, and they have really candid you know, dialogues about the hatred and frustration they feel, and these girls are transformed. And I've witnessed this for a number of years now, and I've volunteered for the organization. And what, I, what the message was from these wonderful, wonderful, brave girls was stop taking sides. Just support both sides to resolve this. And what is so interesting is that after years of being around these girls, I now see films of riots in the West Bank, you know, riots of Palestinians. And I, I'm, I am amazed how beautiful the Palestinian people are. I completely see them differently now. I can no longer root for one of them. It's like rooting for your left hand over your right hand. We are just one. And I've given up all this, uh, this, these, this, uh, what's the prejudice around the situation. Now, again, I'm one person and if we need another couple million to do that, to, make a change, but it starts with one person. And so uh, I'm sharing it now in this podcast, you know? Yeah, I agree. I agree a hundred percent. It's uh, the more inner work I do, and I'll ask you about your practice in a second. The more inner work I do, the more I practice sitting on the couch, sitting on the cushion, meditating, giving props to the Buddha. The <laughs> more I do that, the less manipulated I, I it's uh, manipulatable. I am, the, you know, it's, like I start seeing these manipulations in the media to try to get me to hate another group. Mm -hmm. And the more I just get quiet, just get honest and observe my thoughts dispassionately, just watch the thoughts, watch them come and go. The more I do that, the more I just feel connected to people. And now when someone does a, a hate message, it, it hurts more. It bothers more. I see it more for what it is. It's like, wow. But now I'm seeing that person as wounded rather than just an angry jerk. Mm -hmm. I'm seeing them as wounded. So it's a weird thing. The more I'm, the more patient I am with myself, the more patient I'm becoming with other people. Sure. The more slack I'm cutting myself, the more slack I'm cutting other people. And I'm realizing, oh my God, we're all in this together. We're all terrified. We're all trying to figure it out. We're on this blue rock of water hurtling through space at some ungodly speed it's terrifying yeah. we don't it's hard to figure out well it, beautifully said and i will say this to you as well and i go back again to martial arts look at the role that martial arts has played in religion the shaolin priests the the, the fighting priests of the buddhist orders and the reason they train for martial arts is not to beat up other people it's so they can combat the inner the inner battle which is always the greater battle and if you look at an enlightened muslim you know, jihad is not about blowing up innocent men. And jihad is about the war you wage against the inner battle, uh, against the, the passions of the mind like greed and attachment and vanity. And that's the real jihad. That's the real war. And that's why people that are committed to a spiritual path learn martial arts to discipline themselves so they can show up differently and win the inner battle, you know? So well said. And, and, and to me, that's really what this all comes down to. It all comes down to accountability the, when I started saying this negative feeling is not because of my wife it's not because of my kids it's not because of my job it's not because of any of that it's because of how I'm reacting to 
stimuli. I'm mm-hmm. relaxing, I'm reacting to data a certain way. It's not the data itself. It's not the guy who cut you off. It's how you're reacting to the cutoff. And it's starting to really work. Because you always have the choice. You always have the power to say, I'm going to choose not to be reactive. I'm going to choose not to go into anger. I'm going to choose not to go into blame or shame. Uh, I'm going to choose a different path. And that's, that's winning the war, man. That's winning the and war. And you know the next level, Matthew? When I forget that and when I don't do it, I don't beat myself up about not doing it and forgetting it. Yeah. So someone cuts me off and I race up to him and give him the finger. I don't spend three days in shame about that, right? Like, oh, you're a Mr. Big Buddha, man. Oh, yeah, look at you giving the finger to this guy. No, because that's just more ego. That's just more ego playing its game on me. I say, oh, shit, slipped up. Okay, next. Right right to the next moment, right? Don't give it any more freaking flame that it needs. And that's the mindfulness. Keep coming back to the mindfulness. Well, it's funny. I'll have one more story, one of my favorite stories. There is a Buddhist master and his apprentice walking down the road in China and there's a big, big, you know, muddy hole and there's a beautiful woman staying on the end of it. And the master picks up the woman, walks across the water, sets her down and they continue walking. He and the apprentice and about a mile or two later, you know, the apprentice goes, Master, I cannot believe you touched a woman. You, you, you held her against your body. And he said to his apprentice, I picked her up and I put her down. You've been carrying her for miles. Oh, that's so good. That is so good. Matthew, for anyone who's listening who, you know, they're maybe they're reading your bio right now or they're online, they're seeing all the things you've accomplished. You've been very modest about uh, all your accomplishments here today. There's many more. You can track that by going to his website, going to his Facebook site. Are there any actionable items? You know, we talked about grasping that little flicker of light and uh, reaching out and asking for help, not being afraid, because there's a lot of people out there who want to give you a couple of protocols or give you, a, hey, this worked for me. You know, like, like I, the reason I'm doing this podcast, the meditation works for me. It is helping me. Meditation, that's one of my workflows. Do you have a practice or any, um, anything that you could put out there as a protocol, actionable items for people to help them? Well, I do have a daily spiritual practice that I've had for 42 years. I do a Friday fast for 42 years. Um, I, I attend, you know, uh, meditation groups that helps keep me centered. But if I had to give one thing to your people, and I mentioned it before, it was this word hue, this ancient and sacred name for God. The word itself is very pure. Uh, and when you chant it, they say it's one of the purest sounds you can utter in the physical world. They say the hue is in all sounds, an aircraft engine, a jackhammer, the, the calling of birds. That is the primal sound, and it's reflected it's a sound reflected from a much higher consciousness. So if you can sing that to yourself, let's say 10, 15 minutes a day, just quietly sing the hue. You, I think you might see a huge shift in your life and how you won't be act, uh, as activated by things that used to activate you or you'll have more patience and compassion. And then when those times come that you are challenged in the moment, instead of reacting with anger and frustration, chant the hue. I think you might see a, a huge difference in the quality of your life. And so because you wanted something to take away, that's a very simple, very powerful technique. I love it. I love it. And it sounds very similar to, um, you know, the Eastern philosophy of having a mantra, you know, exactly. something that you come back to. And it gives you a little something to hold on to. So when that dude or that dudette cuts you off on the road, instead of the being Pavlov's dog, in salivating at the ringing of a bell. That's what the cutting off is. The bell is ringing. Instead of having that instant lizard brain 
fight or flight <laughs> uh, reaction, you know, like you were talking about earlier about reactivity and reaction, instead of having the reaction, have that thought of maybe that guy is racing his kid to the hospital because mm-hmm. the kid is choking on yeah, something because yeah. you don't know. And maybe you can, you can um, what do they call it, a mitzvah? You can do a, you can mm-hmm. do a solid. Yeah. You can do a solid for that guy and not judge him and give him love mm-hmm. and get out of the way because he needs to get somewhere. But even if he's just being an ass, <laughs> maybe he's just being an ass. Just be- How many times in your life have you been an ass? I mean, I'm sure it's at least one or two. For me, it's been least. So, you know, again, he's showing you a part of yourself that you don't like. So it's about having compassion for yourself because love starts at home. Love starts first with how we treat ourselves. And if we treat ourselves well, we can treat others better. Yeah, man. And if you believe in karma at all, every time that guy does that, and like you said, if he's just being an ass... And you can still say, hey, brother, give him love yeah. and get out of the way. You just you just put a little money in the karma bank That's right there. That's a great day. That's a great day. <laughs> well, we've been talking with my boy, Matthew Mitchell. Matthew, tell them again where they can find out more about you. Uh, on Facebook at Matthew Mitchell Transformational Speaker. On the web at www.matthewmitchell.com. He crushed it in L.A. He crushed it in Hollywood. He's shown on the physical level how to go out and get exactly what you want and fulfill your dreams on the physical level. He's now doing it on the inner level now. He's now looking inward, and he has lots of great workflow for you if you decide you want to start doing that yourself and taking more accountability and, frankly, becoming happier. I wholeheartedly endorse him and check him out. Thank you, my brother, for coming out. Thank you, Jordan. All right. For our full schedule of fights on the NBC Sports Network, CW and ABC affiliates, visit unitedfightalliance.com. United Fight Alliance. United we fight.